morning everyone. Just tapped on the microphone and ruined the levels. Johnny, sorry about that. I also nearly missed my cues with the musicians, so what a great start. Tell you what, let's read from Psalm 20 to really start our service off today. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious and will lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we will rise up and stand firm. O Lord, save the King. Answer us when we call. Those words just full of confidence in the power of God and his desire to save us, which is what we come here to remember today, isn't it? His desire shown through the love that he showed us and, and his lovely son Jesus. At the moment, with work the way it is, um, I struggle sometimes to rest in confidence in God uh, because I tend to rely on myself too much and the confidence that I have in my own ability. We're going through quite a few upheavals at work at the moment and um, not all associated with Bob Churchill coming to join the company. In fact, none of them associated with that. That's one of the nice things. But there is a lot of change going on and it requires that a number of us think about what it is that we want to do in the future in terms of that work. And it's really easy to plan yourself and the things that you do for yourself and your family or to resort to planning in things that you can be confident in in terms of your own ability and not to just stop and think about what it is that God has planned for you. And uh, I had a good reminder at Christmas. Um, there's still some traditions, uh, particularly in the downer side of the family, uh, around Christmas. And one of them is that you get socks from uh, Ruth and John and they go throughout the family. And, and uh, as these socks were being unwrapped by my brothers-in-law and they had things like Mr. Strong on them and things like that, I was thinking, oh, this is quite a positive, um, a positive sort of reinforcement of them. The ones I got, which I can show you today, say, Mr. Greedy. <laughs> and, and sometimes it takes your mother-in-law doing something as subtle as that to make you realise, um, actually, that maybe I do have too much confidence in myself and the things that I can think I can do and achieve through work. And, uh, and actually, I hope that through what we do today, we will grow in confidence in God and perhaps put behind us some of the things that we always hold as um, strengths in our lives if they are things that are just our own strength and, not, and don't come from God. So we're going to sing about this in our first hymn. Father, I ask that all my life may be, O rule, by thee. The changes then that surely come I shall not fear to see. I ask thee for a steadfast mind intent on pleasing thee. Father, we come before you meaning the words that we've just sung, that we ask you for our daily strength, knowing that if we ask in faith, there is nothing that can be denied that you will deny us. And we ask you for the peace of mind that comes through knowing that truth. And we ask that peace to rest on us here and in this place so that we can feed on you and on your word and be surrounded by those that we know and care and love about. That we can be strengthened to be more potent and more effective in showing your love to those that we come across day to day. 
and that we can be content if it's your will to fill a little space as long as you are glorified. Keep us close to you, Father, in all that we do. In Jesus. Amen. Martin's going to come and give us the announcements, please. Welfare news. Um, But just in case you haven't heard, uh, Philip and Dorothy have completed on the sale of their house or are completing on the sale of their house and are hoping to move um, on Friday the 28th of January. So um, uh, Dorothy said that they'll make sure that their their new address is in the newsletter, uh, which will be published presumably in February. Um, so uh, we think about them as they're getting everything together to to to, to move out and uh, start their their new life in a in a new place. Um, I don't have any other welfare announcements, but uh, before we pray, then would uh, would you let me know if there's anything that you particularly want us to include in our prayer? Zoe Dean, thanks, Sarah. Uh, who some of us know here is back in another round of chemotherapy. This is her fourth treatment, I believe, and uh, <coughs> she's in. Uh, while she's somewhat getting used to the process, the pain and discomfort and uh, general um, horrible feelings that she has to go through on a regular basis are uh, are really getting her down, and it must be very difficult for her boys and for Roy, her husband too. So I think we should remember them as we start a new year. Is there anybody else? I'm sure there will be other thoughts and prayers and concerns that you um, want to carry privately, so I ask you to do that if there's nothing else. But if you'll just join with me, we'll offer a word of prayer. Father, it's always very difficult to be confident that everything that is distressing people here or people who people here love is captured in this moment and in this prayer. But that's only because we think of it from our perspective, isn't it? Because you have everyone's care and everyone's concern at the heart of you. And so I know that for the gaps in what we say now and in what we think now you have made provision and will make provision for all those who need your love and your power working in their lives but also Father you do ask us to pray to you and the act of praying to you and saying out loud our concerns is important for us. Maybe partly because it helps us to show our love for each other and to show our concern for each other. But I think, God, you want us to pray to you because you want us to be confident that you are there and that you are listening and that you care. And so... I ask in confidence that you will be with those people that we thought about today, particularly with Perlene's friend John and his family, with Roy and Zoe and their boys, with Nancy's sister Jean and with Sylvia and Wan and the family who mourn the loss of Sylvia's mum. And I pray that you will comfort them in whatever way is appropriate for those individuals. And I pray that if there is healing in your purpose for those that can be healed, I pray for your miracle, God, to work on them. As a witness for you. And I pray with confidence that you will be with 
Philip and Dorothy as they prepare for their next move. And I pray that you will help us with them and with those others who we haven't mentioned today to keep them close and to act as though they are our brothers and sisters and to make them feel loved and to make them feel part of a family here at Old Trafford so that they won't lose confidence themselves and they won't feel lost and they won't feel left behind. Father, we come to you to ask for your strength to be with David as he speaks to us today and to everybody that's involved in preaching and teaching and singing praise and playing music. We ask for you to be a comforter and a strength and to fill the gaps that we know are there. And we ask especially for your lovely son Jesus to be with us now and to come to us in person soon. In his name. Amen. We're going to have two readings today, one from Psalm 19 and one from Luke 19. So Liz is going to lead us in the first one and Sam will read to us from Luke. So Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech and night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servants also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I just find it absolutely amazing that, um, that God has preserved for us poetry. Thanks, Liz, for reading that. You know, there's history and there's um, lots of information and there's laws and there's all things contained in this Bible. But to preserve poetry for us, and particularly poems like and thoughts like that from David, just gives us such a, a great insight, doesn't it, into the mind of those that are close to God. So from, say, 3,000 years ago, we can see inside the heart of somebody who was following God not because they wrote down the history of what was happening or said in simple words that they were confident or had been touched by God but because they were moved like David was to write psalms like this that just encapture the love that God has for them and for us I suppose in that theme of confidence in God instead of confidence in ourselves then turning to those verses in the Psalms is always a good way of achieving that 
Sam's now going to read to us from Luke chapter 19. Uh, And again, ending with the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minors. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I was a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take this miner away from him and give it to the other one who has ten miners. Sir, they they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road 
goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will keep one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling it. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. And yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. If you feel insignificant in God's eyes, and you read that story that Sam just read to us about Zacchaeus, who hid in a tree because he knew he had to see his saviour, then read the words partway into that where Jesus explains that not only did he come to save, but he came to seek and to save. And just think about that and about the fact that salvation isn't just a carte blanche that's offered out in an impersonal way from God, but that through his Son he seeks out followers from you and from me in order that he can work his salvation in us. There is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. We're going to sing before David comes up and speaks to us. David, will you come and give us your words of expectation, please? Morning, everyone. Luke 19, it's a wonderful chapter, isn't it? Uh, it's, got, it's got so much in it that we can learn from. Beginning with the, 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 the touching story of, of Zacchaeus, who, who sought out Jesus for all the right reasons and discovered that when you do seek him with the right motives, you learn something rather special. That it was really Jesus who was reaching out to you. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. And that's such a, such a comforting message, isn't it, to those of us who too often seem to be better at going astray than we are at seeking salvation. But, but I don't want to, to, to follow that thought today, important as that might be. Uh, I really want to, to come into the chapter at, at verse 11, where Jesus tells one of his longest and, and best-known parables, now you'll remember of course that the reason why little Zacchaeus had, had such difficulty getting to Jesus was that an enormous and excitable crowd had begun to follow this popular preacher from Nazareth expecting something momentous to take place that would transform their downtrodden lives and so verse 11 Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. 
And then he launched into the parable of the ten talents, or, or the ten pounds, or the ten miners, depending on which translation you're reading. And uh, the NIV uh, uses the, the transliteration minor, uh, which in older versions was translated as pound. Neither, actually, I think, are, are very helpful. Minor because, well, this doesn't mean anything to us. And pound, because in present terms it means, well, a pretty small sum. Whereas commentators seem to agree that a minor was quite a significant amount, probably several months' wages. And I, I thought at first that uh, the modern translators had perhaps wanted to avoid the word talent. Uh, but, however, I soon discovered that that can't be right because that's the word that's used in the similar but not identical story in Matthew's Gospel in, uh, in the NIV translation. <coughs> and in any case, I, I understand that it, that refers to a slightly different amount of money. The, the, the problem with the word talent is, is that, like so many words in, in earlier translations, it has a quite different meaning in modern English to do with the person's ability or, or skill. Now, you know the story of, of the parable. Ten servants were given one minor each in Luke's record and, and specifically told to put it to work. In the tale that Matthew records, uh, three servants, in fact, were given five talents, two talents and one talent, respectively. Each and and. This, I think, is where the confusion arises. Each according to his ability, it says. The lesson from this aspect of the parable is, I think, quite clear. We should use what God has given us in his service. I think we'd all agree about that. But, but what is it that he gives us? Is it talent? either of different kinds or of different amounts. Talents in the modern sense of the word. Well, I'm sure he does that. But I also think that what this parable is about is something quite different from that. Even in Matthew's story, the servants weren't given their abilities. In fact, it's quite clear uh, from what's said that, that they already had those. They were given amounts each according to his uh, abilities. What they were given was something that enabled them to display those abilities in ways they might not otherwise have been able to do. What they were given, I believe, were opportunities which they either made the most of or they didn't. And that's the, the real point of the parable. Well, that, actually, there's also a, a, another point uh, to it, which I'll come to in a moment. But what the, the miners' pounds' talents are telling us is that we must make the most of the opportunities that God sends our way and not let them slip past us. Well, that's pretty important, but it's not the only message that Jesus is trying to put over in this parable. As we know, he was perfectly capable of mixing two or more different threads in the same story. In fact, if we go back to verse 11, we'll see that the morality of using your opportunities is not actually what the parable is announced to be about. Uh, well, you might argue that it was Luke who actually gives the parable its introduction, so to speak, but uh, I don't doubt that it came from Jesus you remember what he says? He decided to tell them the parable because the crowd saw him moving determinedly towards Jerusalem and they positively wanted this to be the start of something big. They thought, says Luke, that the kingdom of God was going to appear there and then. So Jesus had to try and tell them that it wasn't going to be quite as simple as that. Listen carefully, said Jesus. 
a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. That's how it's going to be. The ruler elect has to go away. Later, he'll return with full royal power. But listen to this as well. For those who want to be his subjects, there'll be lots to do in the meantime. Plenty of opportunity for anyone who wants to to do good and to help prepare for the return of the king. Interestingly though, Jesus also takes a moment in the parable to stress that not everyone will be eagerly anticipating the king's return. Verse 14, his subjects hated him. It's a strong word, isn't it? And sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. And I'm never sure whether this remark was directed specifically at the Jewish nation or whether it might refer to the millions throughout the world down the ages for whom Jesus is either a religious non-entity or at best nothing more than a minor character. Perhaps both. It hardly matters though because the words that are the key words here are those at the beginning of verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. And that's lovely, I think. Like, like so many biblical phrases, it says so much in, in so few words. No, no argument here. He was made king and he did return home. That's all there is to it. Look, Jesus is saying, this is not the moment for the king to be throned, but it will happen. Not, it might yet happen if the opposition isn't too strong. It will happen but not yet. But when he does, he'll be looking for those who have shown an honest desire to be his friends and his comrades. And then Jesus went on to do what might seem to be a strange thing. At least, I've always been slightly puzzled by it. As they got near to Jerusalem, he sent two of the disciples on ahead with some rather unusual instructions. When you get to Bethany, he said, you'll find a young donkey tied up there in a doorway, Mark says, with its mother, Matthew says. I want you to untie it and bring it here to me. And he doesn't say whether the disciples queried this, but I think we can almost assume that they did, not least because even coveting someone else's donkey, never mind taking it, was against the most fundamental of their laws. Jesus was not one for breaking the law. Anyway, Jesus told them what to say if anyone should ask them what they thought they were doing. It probably didn't require Jesus' prophetic powers to forecast that in a close-knit community like Bethany, someone was going to notice a rather blatant theft like that. Just say this, said Jesus, the Lord needs it. My first thought was that the two disciples would look at each other and say, yeah, right, we'll get away with that, won't we? They'll just say, what for? Or maybe, what kind of an answer is that? But the amazing thing is, they did get away with it. They were, as expected, challenged, and they replied, as Jesus had instructed them, the Lord needs it. And the owners of the donkey said, well, you'll have to imagine, in fact, what the owners of the donkey said, because the Bible doesn't tell us. Mark's Gospel simply mentions that the people let them go off with the donkey. Matthew and Luke say absolutely nothing at all. But it's difficult to imagine that the owners can't have said something like, uh, oh, that's all right then, (laughs) if that was all there was to it. In fact, it was Matthew in his Gospel who explained what was happening here. And it's generally acknowledged, isn't it, that that Matthew was writing for Jewish readers because his Gospel refers more than others do to, to Jewish history and prophecy and customs. 
And that being so, you can argue both that it was logical for him to give the explanation that he did, which we'll come to in a minute, uh, and also that it was illogical. Uh, I'll let you decide. You could say that it was logical because his readers would recognise what he was referring to. In fact, he even wrote simply that it was something spoken by the prophet. Uh, he didn't even need to tell them which prophet it was. It was Zechariah. They'd know that. On the other hand, you could argue that it would be more relevant if Mark and Luke, especially Luke, writing to a Gentile reader, had explained the Jewish background to the incident, which, without uh, knowing, without knowing which, um, Jesus' action might seem to their readers to be arbitrary at best and even provocative or worse, be that as it may it was left to Matthew to comment that what Jesus did was in direct fulfilment of an old Jewish prophecy. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. No wonder that Matthew, unlike the other two, includes the donkey and its mother in what is said and what's done. It was a quote, from the prophecy of Zechariah from chapter 9 and verse 9 where we find the same message practically word for word except for a couple of additions both of which are rather significant firstly in Zechariah it doesn't simply say tell this to the daughter of Zion it says what the reaction of the recipient of the news should be rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout daughter of Jerusalem And secondly, Zechariah says that the king who comes riding on a donkey is not only gentle, as Matthew quotes, but also righteous and having salvation. And many of Matthew's readers would be aware of that when they read Matthew's condensed version. They would be aware of the breadth of the full message that he was, I think, pointing them towards. We, on the other hand, might miss it if we didn't take a trip back to Zechariah to check on what was actually written. Another lesson for us about Bible study. But that still leaves one difficult question unanswered. Why did Jesus choose to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Simple question with a simple answer, some would say. Because anyone who knew Zechariah 9, and I assume that most of them did, would recognise the symbolism. Here is your king. Well, yes. But when you think about it, that's not entirely satisfactory, is it? Many people in Israel were expecting, expecting the Messiah at around that time. They knew their prophecy. They'd read Daniel and others. And, and you may be aware uh, that, that history records that Jesus was not the only one who claimed or was claimed to be the Messiah around that time. Josephus mentions at least two others who were contemporary with Jesus, Simon of Perea and Athronges. Both, it seems, demonstrated their kingship by having themselves crowned and both set out to prove their right to the title by shows of military strength. Both failed. Jesus did neither of those things. His only crown was a crown of thorns pressed viciously onto his head by those who thought that they'd defeated him in a gesture that was more ironic than they could ever have guessed. And earlier, when the crowds had sought to make him their leader, with an eye, no doubt, to the use of his miraculous powers against the Romans, he literally walked away from the situation. So we ask ourselves, what might a would-be Messiah do to press his claim in front of the people? Surely for a nation raised on tales of ancient seers, the fulfilment, fulfilment of an Old Testament prophecy was likely to carry enormous weight. Why didn't the other pretenders think of that? Too busy with their military plans, perhaps. 
what Jesus did was to deliberately and consciously fulfill one of the best known prophecies about the Messiah. The one from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Ah, but there's the rub, as Hamlet might have said. What benefit is to be gained by someone deliberately and publicly carrying out an action that replicates the words of prophecy that everyone knows and that every, everyone knows he would know and they would know that he knew that they knew it doesn't prove anything does it the other would be messiahs could have done it if they thought of it it doesn't really prove anything but the odd thing is it seems to have worked the crowds spread their cloaks on the road in a sort of red carpet display which perhaps says more about the mass behaviour of crowds than anything else. But that doesn't answer the question that was nagging at me about all this. Would Jesus really resort to that, to use prophecy in that way? He was the wisest man who ever lived. He would know that anyone with even half his brain power would see that it didn't necessarily prove anything. Yes, it might really be the fulfilment of prophecy. But it could equally well be an elaborate con. Or could it just be that Jesus did it with another purpose, or other purposes, plural, in mind? As we've said before, he was more than capable of achieving several objectives at once. And I think that this was another example of just that did the event point people towards thinking that Jesus could well be the Messiah the promised king of Israel well obviously it did that even though as I've suggested it wasn't exactly conclusive proof but what it really did I'd like to suggest was to point them towards Zechariah chapter 9 not just verse 9 in fact but the, the whole chapter and perhaps to some other bits of prophecy too. But I like to think that they would in their minds go back to the previous chapter in that prophecy, to chapter 8, with its kingdom vision of blessings for Jerusalem. Now, chapter 8, Zechariah, certainly gives the people messages they wanted to hear, prophecies they longed to see coming true. Verse 2 and 3, I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. I will return to Zion, dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. But Jesus wanted to remind them that certain things had to happen before the kingdom really returned to Jerusalem. He'd already told them that he had to go away and return later as the king. Now, he was gently reminding them that their own prophets hinted as much to them if they could just see it. What about verses 7 and 8 of chapter 8 of Zechariah? He might have been saying to them, well, yes, I know, they, they didn't have the chapters and verses for reference but you know what I mean look what God said I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west and the west notice and I will be a faithful and righteous God to them that's what I want you to think about had that happened before? Yes, it had, certainly from the east. But this seems to be saying it must happen again, perhaps on a greater scale than ever before. And then there's another little vision of the kingdom. Verse 12. The seed will grow, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. Wonderful. But wait, says the prophet, there are conditions attached to this. 
And you also need to understand what God's plan is and that his plan is to extend his kingdom into a worldwide kingdom. Think about what that means. Here are the conditions, says the prophet. They should have known these anyway, of course, but uh, they are, interestingly, I suppose, things that are the very core of Christian living. Verse 16. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgments in your courts. Do not plot evil against your neighbour. Do not love to, f- to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. And that was in Zechariah, remember, but you, c- you can almost hear it being Jesus saying it, can't you? But there's more to it than that, says the prophet. This kingdom, when it finally comes, will be for everyone who wants to be in it. Yes, anyone. Verses 20 to 23. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities, and he seems to be breaking it gently to them at first, will come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. And then he hits them with the whole story. Many people and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty. In those days, ten men, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the edge of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. And these are momentous passages for Jews and Gentiles. And I think that Jesus was trying to get those who heard him to put them into the context of his message about going away and returning later as king. Look, I think he's saying, these things have got to happen. They're not happening now. There's no sign of them happening soon. But they will happen while the king is away. Some of them when he returns. Back in chapter 9 of Zechariah, we might still be puzzled by Jesus' visual use of the donkey prophecy. But if we read on through the rest of the chapter, we begin to see, certainly with hindsight, that although verse 9 may identify the king, what follows takes us on to events still in the future at that time. And, and of course, as we now know, still in the future to us. Verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. That wasn't the sort of thing they really wanted to hear from Jesus, was it? In the manner of Israelites and and, and Israelis all down the ages, they were looking for military victory against their enemies. But you need to understand, Jesus was saying to them, that that isn't what this king is about. Continuing with the quote from Hezekiah, he, it says, and notice now it says he, he will proclaim peace to the nations. That's what this king will bring when he rules, when he rules from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Remember what the angels proclaimed at Jesus' birth, peace on earth. And in a very telling hint about how all this might be achieved, which Jesus would understand only too well, even if the others might not, verse 11 says this, As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. But this will only happen when the king has returned. And verse 14 certainly suggests that this will result first in a violent conflict with those who oppose his return. Remember the parable. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. But what of those who have been faithful to the king? Here's the wonderful ending to the prophecy. 
the Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his land as jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Isn't that wonderful? They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. And what an appropriate link back to the parable that Jesus told. The story of the king who went away and then returned to take up the kingdom. Those who have shown that they are his true and willing subjects who really want to be with him in the kingdom will be there. But more than that, they will be jewels in his crown. Sparkling jewels in his crown. How did they show that they wanted to be there? They used their opportunities and they used their initiative to develop the assets of the kingdom. And why did they do that? Because they believed in the king. That's all it takes. Well, no, that's not all it takes. But all the other things that it takes follow from that and demonstrate that belief. The man with one pound didn't believe. He feared the nobleman, I think. But he saw nothing that attracted him. So he did nothing. And at this point you might want to ask, which is worse, to try but fail or not to try at all. Would the nobleman's response, what would it have been if the man had said, uh, I'm sorry, I really tried to put the money to work, but my investment didn't prosper? Well, that's something I'll leave you to ponder. But I will say this. The servants who were commended had made spectacular gains, five times and even ten times what they started with, And as any investor will tell you, you only make those kind of gains if you're prepared to take some risk. Perhaps that's another little lesson for us from the parable. And I think this hint about them taking a risk with their life definitely adds something to the parable because it emphasises what I suggested before, that they had confidence in the man they were doing it for. They trusted him. They had faith in him. And that's what our Christianity is all about, isn't it? Wherever else our Christianity might take us, and and it takes different people in different directions, what it really hinges on is our belief in Jesus, our faith in him as the king who will return and will take us with him to the kingdom. (coughs) Thank you. David for taking us on a journey with a king in waiting on a donkey towards a place which in the next few days was going to be a sign uh, to all of us of the horror that man could inflict on the Son of God and we'll remember that in the meal that we share together after singing in a moment But he did return from that and he did go to a far place, another land to be crowned. And we're going to sing about that in Praise the Lord number 9. Our crowned king, who is yet to return to this earth, but who by God's spirit lives in all of us. At your feet we fall, mighty risen Lord, as we come before your throne to worship you. By your Spirit's power you now draw our hearts and we hear your voice in triumph ringing clear. I am he that liveth, that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Praise the Lord. Nine. Alex, will you come and pray for us please? Lord Jesus, thank you for this symbol for the symbol and what it reminds us of. Thank you. We believe in you, Lord. We believe in you, that you will return as King. 
And we thank you that this meal emphasises that. And thank you that in that that act of entering Jerusalem on a donkey wasn't any any less of a kingly symbol. Only it was a symbol of a king who comes in peace. Thank you for your your constant reminders that your way, the way of the Lamb, is always is always the way of peace. And I pray, Lord, that remembering that, remembering this this meal weekly, it will help us to live lives of peace, live resurrection lives. Because, Lord, that's what it reminds me of today. This meal of bread reminds me that that ultimately the world is not a cold, hard, dead place. It reminds me, Lord, that, that death does not have the last word. It reminds me, Lord, that you said that one day you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That you were talking not about that physical temple, but your body. And you were talking about something new and unexpected. You were talking about resurrection. Because, Lord, when you rose from the dead, you announced that your Father, our Father, has not given up on this world because it matters to him. It matters to you. This world that we call home, this world that's made up of dirt and blood and sweat and skin and light and water and earth and plants and animals, and this world is, is, is the world that you're interested in and the world that our Father God is interested in. That you're interested in redeeming it and restoring it and renewing it for your glory. And Father, I pray that that this meal of remembrance today will help us to focus and remember that our lives do matter. That this resurrection meal tells us that what we do with our lives matters. These bodies that we inhabit, every act of compassion, every, every work of art that we might do, every, everything that celebrates the good and the true, they all matter to you. Every fair and honest thing in our lives, any act of business or work that is true, and kind they all belong and they will all continue Father God in your good world nothing will be forgotten nothing is wasted Jesus help us to trust in resurrection help us be with us live in us to trust that every glimmer of good every hint of hope every impulse that lifts up our souls to God is a, is a sign it's a, a foretaste of this kingdom that you have promised help us to live from now in your affirmation of our reality so that we can embrace that and live from now into the seamless reality of your kingdom, which will go on and on. Lord, help us to live not only by, but in your grace, as we share this meal. In Jesus' name, Amen.
because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. John's going to come and lead us in prayer again in this peaceful place. Dear, lovely Father, I tend not to use words like that about you, Lord, lovely, but you are. I know you are a lovely Father to us. Dear Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your lovely Son. You sent us a lovely man your son because you love us and I think we find it very difficult to get hold of that and we still think of you Father as being remote and you Lord Jesus as being remote Lord we're going to take wine we're going to drink it and of course I know it's not the wine that's special it's you that's special Lord Thank you for Alex, thank you for his words. But Lord, I, I don't want to wait until the resurrection. I want to know you now. And I want us each one to know you now. Lord Jesus, you came to show us God. Father, you show us your loveliness in his face. What amazes me, Father, is that you sent this lovely man as our son, too. I mean, of course, the son of man. Lord Jesus, you call yourself the son of man. And I believe that you are Emmanuel. You are God with us now, still, in heaven. And you are the link, as it were, if we needed one, between your lovely Father and us. Thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you. When we think of you, Lord, we begin to have a sense of how God loves us. Father, what you feel about us, your passion, Thank you. And as we drink this wine, Lord, let it not just be wine, but Lord Jesus, fill us with yourself and help us to honour you. Lord, thank you. Amen. But now, continues Paul in Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. If we are confused about what we're supposed to be doing in our life or our work or anywhere else, then it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because God's plan is clear. It might not always be obvious, but it is clear. He plans to seek and to save. And he might do that through a blinding flash of light that stuns us into a response. Or he might do it through something as strange as putting the king of the world on a donkey to ride into a small town in the Middle East but however he does it he wants us to have confidence that he is seeking us and saving us we're going to sing about that confidence in praise the Lord 188 I rest in God alone from him comes my salvation my soul finds rest in him 
my fortress. I'll not be shaken. We'll have a prayer and then when our voluntary is being played um, we'll have a collection which I didn't do earlier in the service. Father, my prayer as we come to the end of this service is very simple. I pray that you will open our hearts to you and to your lovely son Jesus and that you will allow us to have the luxury of your peace in our lives. That even in the most frantic moments of our lives we will find rest in you and utter confidence in your salvation in Jesus. Amen.